So Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Thank you, Richard. What do Mark Zuckerberg, Barack Obama, and Steve Jobs have in common? Loads of things, actually, silly question. But one thing in particular is that they always wear or wore pretty much the same clothes every single day. Perhaps you can picture them in your mind's eye. Steve Jobs in his black turtleneck sweater and trousers. Mark Zuckerberg in his grey t-shirt. Obama turning up uh, each day to work as the president in either a blue or a grey suit. And each man had the same reason for doing so. You see, in their jobs, those men had to make hundreds of decisions every single day. Important, difficult decisions. In the case of Obama, globally significant decisions. Decisions that affected hundreds or thousands or millions of people. Decisions that attracted scrutiny and criticism. Decisions that carried cost and risk and were therefore emotionally exhausting, such as the price of leadership. So these three men all reckoned, excuse me, these three men all reckoned that they needed some area of their life where they didn't have to make a decision at all. At the beginning of the day, with a hundred decisions to be made over the next 12 hours, they opened their wardrobe and breathed a sigh of relief. No decision needed. Close your eyes, reach out your hands, and choose one of a dozen identical coat hangers. No real consequences, no hard thinking, no criticism, no cost, no risk. A moment of decisionless bliss at the beginning of the day. Until, of course, people started to write snarky newspaper articles about why they always wear the same thing. Never mind. Decisions are hard. And even if you're not in any particular form of leadership, even if your decisions only affect yourself, we all know that, don't we? Decisions are hard. Even deciding what to have for tea or what to do with a free Saturday can be a cause of stress and anxiety in our, in our family. And that's only a small decision with no real consequences. The big decisions can be agonizing. Decisions about what career to pursue, about where to live, about how to proceed with an expensive building project. They're agonizing because they're costly and risky and because we don't know the future. We don't know for sure what's around the corner and yet decisions have to be made. Even the attitude which simply ticks over and maintains the status quo is itself a decision which has costs and risks. 
The decision to change career or move house or pursue a new lifestyle or relationship opens you up to risk or rejection or failure, but so does the decision to do nothing. Think of the good things we could be missing out on, the opportunities we might be neglecting by not changing. As the clash once sang, should I stay or should I go? To summarise all of that, decisions are hard. Last week in Matthew's Gospel, we saw a turning point for the disciples. They'd been struggling to understand Jesus, struggling to understand his mission, even struggling to interpret his words, as Michael showed us earlier. While Jesus was trying to warn them about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they thought he was rebuking them for failing to bring a packed lunch. They were way off piste. And yet at the very end of the passage, they twigged what he was talking about. A very minor deduction, but one which gives us a lot of hope for them. After all, Jesus has told them that to, what, to the one who is listening to him, more revelation will be given. So Jesus now sees that it's time to raise the stakes. The disciples have been following him for a while. They've been listening to his words. They've been seeing his works. And they've got a couple of small things about him. And so now comes the big question. Look at verse 13 of our passage today. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Just like today, back then there were many opinions about Jesus knocking around. I've already seen a few of them. In chapter 11, people were calling him a glutton and a drunkard because he ate with tax collectors and sinners. In chapter 12, the Pharisees and scribes called him possessed by the devil. The disciples perhaps understandably don't focus on those. They give some more positive interpretations of who Jesus is. Some say he's John the Baptist brought back to life. That's what Herod thought back in chapter 14, if you remember. Some say he's Elijah. Back in the Old Testament, there was the promise that a prophet like Elijah would return just before the Lord himself returned to rescue and to judge some say he's Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jeremiah prophesied strongly against the national religious authorities at the time, and he was constantly persecuted by them. So there's a certain parallel there to Jesus' experience. And we can see those are generally positive descriptions, aren't they? The Pharisees and Sadducees may have completely rejected Jesus, but the wider people don't seem to have done. They liken him to one of the great prophets, a man sent from God with an authoritative message, one worth listening to. Someone who has a big part to play in God's work in the world. Jesus say to the disciples, you should know, people think you're a pretty big deal. But Jesus is not flattered by the comparison. Remember, he has said to the Pharisees and Sadducees last week that they need to read the signs of the times. This is the time of God's kingdom. This is the time of God's salvation. This is the time of decision. So he turns the spotlight onto the disciples in verse 15. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Decisions are hard. But Jesus is calling on his disciples to decide. And as we see their decision and what that means for them, we too are being addressed today. We are being called to decide for Jesus that might be for the very first time. Perhaps you've never really made up your mind about who Jesus is. Or it might be that you are already one of his disciples, yet there is still a daily need to decide for him, to pin your colours to the mass, to put your stake in the ground for Jesus. Either way, 
We're going to need God's help as Jesus calls us to decision. So shall we pause and pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you address us in your word and by your spirit. And Father, we long to see Jesus rightly. We long to make the right decision about him. So help us, please. Help us by your spirit to see him for who he is and give us joy as we see it. In Jesus' name, amen. Who do you say I am? That is the question. How do the disciples answer it? Well, they respond, first of all, with a God-given confession. God-given confession. Peter's often the spokesman for the disciples, always the quickest to answer, not always to his credit, but this time he get things uh, bang on. Look at verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It is remarkable when you think about it how quickly the penny has dropped, isn't it? Just a few moments ago in the boat, the disciples were not really listening to Jesus, misinterpreting his mission, confidently sharing their complete ignorance about his words. But now they get it. Being a prophet is indeed a very big deal, but if that's all we think about Jesus, that he's a man sent from God that we should all listen to, we will fall very far short of the mark. He is so much greater than that. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen king, the one in the line of David, who God promised would rule forever over the whole world. He's not just an important player in God's salvation plan. He is the climax and the pinnacle of it. He is the son of the living gods. At the beginning of the term, the growth groups had a chance to think a bit more about this language, about Jesus being the son of God. We're going to return to it actually at Easter. Throughout the Bible, the king of God's kingdom is called the son of God, the one who represents God to us, the one who acts like God's, like normal sons represent their fathers and are a bit like their fathers. And yet here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to start filling out this description a bit more for us to raise the stakes even higher about what the son of God means. Later on in Matthew 22, he will explain that the son of God, the son of David, is also the Lord of David. He's not just a king in the line of David. He is immeasurably greater than any human being. And here in Matthew 16, we see a hint of that. Jesus calls God, verse 17, his father in heaven. There are hints here of a deep, intimate relationship with God, which surpasses anything we've seen before. Jesus is greater than the prophets and greater even than the kings. He is the greatest of all. And the more the disciples spend time with him, the more they're going to think of him. That's not true of most people, is it? The more people spend time with me, the more of my flaws they'll see and the less they'll think of me. But if you listen to Jesus and spend time in his word, you will find that however great you think he is, he's a bit better than that. But how do we come to that realization? How has Peter suddenly twigged this wonderful truth about the identity of Jesus? We see it in verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Last week we thought about the question, why do people believe in Jesus? And we we might come up with various answers to that question from a human perspective, none of which would be wrong. People believe in Jesus because they're brought up in families where believing in Jesus is normal. People believe in Jesus because they come to church and they hear a sermon and they're convinced. 
People believe in Jesus because they read the Bible with a friend and they see an interpretation of their world and of their hearts, which is persuasive, and they gratefully accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness. And all of that is true. But Jesus gives us a heaven's-eye view on what is going on when someone comes to understand Jesus' identity for themselves. It's a matter not merely of human understanding, but of divine revelation. I hope you see that indeed it has to be this way. We've seen Jesus rebuke both the Pharisees and his own disciples for their blindness. We've heard him teach that the source of all the evil and wickedness in our world is in fact our own corrupted hearts. We've seen people witness clear signs about Jesus, hear clear words from him and willfully refuse to believe what they've heard. See, I think we're used to the idea that salvation is by grace alone, that we cannot make ourselves righteous, that we cannot forgive ourselves of sins committed against God, and we need God's gracious initiative to rescue us from ourselves and from his wrath. But Jesus also teaches that revelation, too, is by grace alone. That if we've understood something about Jesus, if we've seen that he is the Christ, if we've got it, that he is the son of the living God, then that is a gift of God's grace. It's a heavenly blessing which we did not deserve. Indeed, every time we grasp something new about God from his word, every time we suddenly understand a passage we've never really got before, every time we see a new link between the Old Testament and the new, these are precious gifts of God's grace, opening our blind eyes, softening our hard hearts. That reminds us, doesn't it, to approach God's word prayerfully and humbly, acknowledging that we are biased not to believe it. And so praising God when we see something in it which magnifies the person of Jesus in our minds. It's so easy to take this for granted, isn't it? And yet we should be astonished and thankful that God would address us at all and open our eyes to his truth. Peter, therefore, as Jesus says, is blessed. Because God has opened his eyes to see that Jesus is the son of the living God. But this is not just new understanding for an individual. This is the start of something much, much bigger. This is the beginning of a Christ-centered gathering. Christ-centered gathering. I wonder what um, clubs or societies are represented in this room, what uh, groups you belong to outside of the church. We're, We're wired as humans to gather together, aren't we? to associate with, other, with each other around a shared love or passion or activity. You might belong to a football club supporters association or a choir or a political party or all three, in which case you have a very busy week. Uh, but most of us here also belong to a church, to this church. And if you're new to us, you should know that we'd love you to belong here too, to be part of our community. But what's going on when we gather in church? Is it just the same as those other associations, just another voluntary organization? A club of people who happen to love Jesus, like the club down the road who happen to love cricket. Well, let's see what Jesus says in response to Peter's confession. Verse 18, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There's a lot going on here. Let's uh, work through this verse slowly and see what's happening. Peter has named Jesus' true identity. You are the Christ. And in response, Jesus names Peter's identity, his true identity, and you are Peter. Remember, Peter's name is actually Simon. 
Peter is a kind of nickname for him or even a title. Uh, The Greek word Petra means rock, and so Peter, Petros, is called the rock, the foundation stone on which Christ is going to build his church. Now, we have to be careful here because this verse has been the cause of a very influential misunderstanding. The Roman Catholic Church take this verse to mean that the Apostle Peter is particularly special, that he's been given a special role as the authoritative leader of the church, the sort of global worldwide church, and that those who succeed him as the Bishop of Rome... By the way, we don't know for sure whether Peter was the church leader of Rome, but never mind that for now. But those who succeed him as the bishop of Rome, those who succeed him have the same role, that same authority. And you may know that the symbol of the Roman Catholic Church is a pair of crossed keys, which refers to the keys which Peter has given in the next verse. But that's a mistaken reading of this passage. For a start, in chapter 18, you see that, um, well, not in this series actually, but in chapter 18, the keys are going to be given to all the disciples, not just Peter. And Peter himself, who is called a rock by Jesus in this passage, is called a stumbling stone by Jesus in the very next one. Here, he confesses Jesus rightly, and Jesus says, here is the foundation stone, here is the beginning of my church. Next week, we'll see him confess Jesus wrongly, get something badly wrong about his identity, and Jesus will say, well, you are now a stumbling stone. In fact, at this moment, you're an agent of Satan. There's nothing inherently special about Peter, and there's certainly nothing special about the Bishop of Rome. Peter is called the rock at this point because he is the first to confess the truth about Christ. He's the first to see Jesus in his true identity. He's the first member of Christ's new gathering. You see, that is what is so significant about Peter's confession. It's not just that it's a new piece of understanding for Peter. It's that it's the start of a whole new community, indeed a whole new humanity. Jesus says that he is going to build his church. This is the first time that Jesus has used this word, but it's a perfectly normal everyday word. It just means a gathering, an assembly, a a group of people getting together physically in one location, an ordinary local church. And so in that sense, it's just like any other organization. But the difference is who it belongs to and who is going to build it. This is not just a human institution. This is Jesus' church, his gathering, his community, his congregation, his people. You see, before Jesus, God had already gathered a church in one sense, what Stephen in Acts chapter 7 calls the church in the wilderness, the people of Israel redeemed from slavery in Egypt. That was a national gathering built around that rescue from Egypt, assembled in the name of Yahweh. We've seen that the nation of Israel is not the final goal of God's plan. Indeed, we've seen the leaders of Israel in last week's passage described as a twisted and an adulterous generation such that when their own Messiah, their own Christ comes to them, they reject him. But some accept him. Some see him for who he is like Peter and the other disciples here. But not all of them are Israelites. The Canaanite woman from a couple of weeks ago called Jesus Lord and Son of David, even though she was from the enemies of Israel, she saw Jesus for who he was. And so local churches are going to be international communities, not united by ethnicity or by personality type or by likes and dislikes or even quite by a shared interest. 
but by a shared love for and submission to Jesus as their Lord. And this is the gathering that Jesus is going to build. This is the gathering, says Jesus, that the gates of Hades are not going to overcome. That language of the gates of Hades is used in the Old Testament as a metaphor for death. And it could also be referring to the satanic powers that we've seen are a reality throughout the book of Matthew. Death, Satan. This is actually a a twofold promise from Jesus. Jesus here is promising that his people, as they gather in local churches, are not going to have an easy time of things. Just as Jesus himself has been attacked and assailed by Satan, so the gathering around him will be as well. Just as Jesus constantly faced the threat of death, so his church will often feel like it's dying. The gates of Hades will be a constant presence in the life of the church of Jesus. That's the first bit of the promise. (laughs) And yet Jesus was able to resist and defeat the attacks of Satan. And so he is going to empower his church to do the same. Jesus is going to triumph over the grave. And so the gathering around him will never perish. That's the second part of the promise. The gates of Hades are not going to overcome it. That doesn't mean that all individual local churches will go on forever. It doesn't mean that every church which claims the name of Jesus truly belongs to Jesus. But it does mean that in every generation, Jesus will gather people to himself in ordinary local churches which believe and cling to the same confession as Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. These local churches will often feel weak, and beset by difficulties, yet because they are built by Jesus and gathered around Jesus, who is the risen and reigning king of all the nations for all of time, then they're the most glorious communities of all to belong to, because they're God's new humanity in Christ. So again, can we take a moment to appreciate the privilege of that? We saw earlier, from a human perspective, understanding the Bible seems like a pretty normal thing. But from a heavenly perspective, it's an extraordinary gift of God's grace. Well, we can see church life from those same two perspectives as well. When viewed from a human perspective, it's a church life's fairly mundane thing, isn't it? It's a fairly humdrum thing. Church is something we do. We gather with people on a Sunday through the week. It's, it's often great, sometimes hard, sometimes really hard. Sometimes we gather as a church and we walk away feeling fantastic. Other times it all feels a bit ordinary. Church is full of people who are really kind and loving to us and we value really highly. And it's full of people who rub us up the wrong way and who sin against us. Yet, view it from Jesus' perspective. This local church, like all local churches in our city and beyond, who truly confess Jesus as the Christ, is what God is doing in the world. It's a gift of his grace to us to gather us to himself. Jesus himself is building local churches like ours and he's made precious promises to us. This is not just any other association. It's a new family, a new community, a new humanity, an outpost of heaven on earth and a little foretaste of the final gathering of God's people around the throne room of heaven which will praise Jesus for all eternity. And it begins here in Matthew 16, when God opens Peter's eyes to see that Jesus really is the Christ. 
And that's what he's doing today. That's what he continues to do week by week, day by day, to open people's eyes to the truth, to gather them into local churches all over our world, to build his new humanity. And the gates of Hades, the death and Satan and anything that he can throw at the church will never overcome it. But how will this Christ-centered gathering work? How will Jesus build it? Well, finally, Jesus gives his disciples a heaven-sent authority. Read verse 19 with me. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, these are tricky verses, and there's been an awful lot of um, debate about what these keys are and what the binding and loosing are all about. We're going to come back to it, actually, in Matthew 18, when Jesus explains things a bit further. But it's worth uh, seeing the Old Testament background to these keys. And so will you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 22? Page number on the screen, it's page 705 in the Red Bibles, Isaiah 22. Matthew, remember, is writing um, his gospel as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament uh, promises. So when we see something like this that we don't understand, it's worth looking back in our Bibles and saying, well, is there something in the Old Testament that helps us understand it? Now, I'll be honest, Isaiah 22 is also quite tricky, but bear with me. Uh, We don't have time to explore this in detail, but let me walk you through Isaiah 22. Uh, This is a passage, Isaiah 22, about regime change. In Isaiah 22, uh, God rebukes Jerusalem and her leaders for having no regard for him, for ignoring his cause to repent, and instead building their own private kingdoms of status and wealth. So for an example of that, look at verse 11. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to the one who made it. Or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. But see, there's joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. So do you see Jesus coming to Jerusalem and to Jerusalem's leaders and saying, you guys need to repent. And they're ignoring him and just having a great time and building their own little kingdom. In particular, in verses 15 to 19, God singles out a man called Shebna. Verse 15, he's one of the stewards, someone who's in charge of the palace, in charge of the storehouses of the king. Elsewhere in the Bible, he is called a scribe, a teacher in the law. We see this man in verse 16, just look at that. He's been uh, busy preparing a great monument to himself, a fabulous grave for people to remember him by. And we see in verse 18 that he's been amassing chariots for himself, something that even the kings weren't really allowed to do in the Old Testament. This is a a sign of arrogance and pride. So here's this man, Shebna. He's proud and arrogant. He's got no regard for the Lord or indeed anyone but himself. And so verse 19 says, I will depose you from your office and you'll be ousted from your position. So he's gone and a new steward is put in place. Look at verse 20. In that day, I will summon my servant, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. 
What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honor for the house of his father. So do you see there's regime change? There's a new person placed as a steward of David's kingdom. And in place of Shebna the scribe, Eliakim is made master of the house and given the key to the storehouses. So it'll be his job to manage the palace and to distribute the treasures of the kingdom. That's Isaiah 22. You might think that doesn't shed a lot of light on Matthew 16. But, but now read with me some verses that we saw a few weeks ago in Matthew 13 when Jesus' disciples heard and understood his parables. They're on the screen. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Those teachers of the law, those scribes who understand what Jesus is talking about, those who see Jesus as the king of God's kingdom are able to see things in the Bible that they never saw before. They're able to bring out of the storehouse of God's word new treasures as well as the old ones. As they interpret the word through the lens of Christ, they're able to supply his people with all they need. Later on in Matthew 24, Jesus says that the wise and faithful steward, the one who gives people their food in the proper time, is the one who is always aware of Jesus' kingdom and teaching people about his return. So come back with me to Matthew 16. What's just been happening in Matthew's gospel? Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those who built their own private kingdoms, those who were in it for themselves and would not repent when Jesus called them to it, they have been rejected by Jesus. They've been deposed from their office just like Shebna. Not only are they not leaders in Jesus' new gathering, they're not even in it. Regime change has occurred. And now it is Peter and the other disciples, not natural leaders we might think, ordinary humble men who have confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They have seen that the Old Testament scriptures point forward to him. They are the beginnings of the new humanity, the new gathering around Jesus, the everlasting kingdom of God. And so Jesus tells them, you are going to be the ones who bring treasures out of the story, who nourish my people with the revelation of who I am. And insofar as the disciples teach truthfully about Jesus, what they say and teach, how they apply the word to people's lives will be a reflection and a revelation of true heavenly reality. That's what's behind the language of the binding and loosing. When Jesus says that whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever they loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, that is not saying that God is going to simply rubber stamp everything they do that these disciples can do whatever they like and Jesus will just wave it on through. No, we know that's not true because of how Jesus speaks to Peter in the next passage and how Paul speaks to Peter in Galatians, for example, when he rebukes him for his gospel-denying behavior. These men are going to make mistakes and they're going to need to be corrected. But these men are going to go on to write the New Testament. They're going to speak truth about Jesus. They're going to reveal the treasures of his word. They're going to unveil how life should work in this new community. They're going to explain what kind of behavior belongs in the church and what doesn't. They're going to authoritatively declare what constitutes true belief in Jesus and what doesn't. 
They're going to reveal what is binding on the consciences of God's people and what isn't. This is the beginning of what Paul calls later the foundation of the apostles and prophets on which the church is built. In their work, here on earth, heavenly realities are going to be revealed. What a privilege. And every local church who follows in their footsteps has that same privilege. It must be clear the apostles were unique. We're not called to rewrite the New Testament or decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. We follow the authoritative teaching of the apostles that's revealed in the Bible. But Jesus is going to explain in Matthew 18 that the keys of the kingdom are in one sense entrusted to all those local churches who would come after the apostles. A church which submits to the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles and who orders their conduct based on God's word is also a revelation of a heavenly reality. The gathering on earth is a reflection of the true gathering in heaven. In Matthew 18, that's particularly true in the sense of calling people to account for their sin and offering people God's forgiveness when they repent and putting them out of fellowship when they refuse to repent. When that's done rightly, when it's done in line with God's word and the revelation of Jesus, that is not just some local voluntary organization deciding its rules and organizing its membership lists. Now, that is a revelation of the kingdom of heaven, of the truth about Jesus, of what it means to be a member of his people. It is a powerful, authoritative declaration to a watching world of the glory and grace of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We'll say much more about that when we get to Matthew 18, but again, let's just pause and once again see the privilege of this. When we open the Bible and think about it through the lens of Jesus as the people who are going to do the Bible skills course tomorrow are going to learn how to do, we're not just doing some interesting literature study or some textual analysis. We are being given by God's grace through his spirit the treasures of the palace of God. We're being nourished by bread from heaven. We're being given a glimpse of heavenly realities of what is really true in our world. We as the gathered people of God, of Jesus, are being invited into the very throne room of his Father to learn from him, to learn to walk in his ways, to begin to live like the new humanity that we have been made by Jesus. So let's conclude and and let's notice the slightly strange ending to the passage. In verse 20, Jesus tells the disciples not to tell anyone that he's the Christ. That might be a surprise. Haven't they? They've just got it, haven't they? They're the foundation of the church's witness. They're about to bring new treasures from God's word. Surely Jesus should now just let them get on with it. We'll come back next week and we'll see why Jesus bans them from speaking just yet. You see, they have confessed truly that he is the son of the living God, but God has not yet granted them understanding about what Christ's mission is. They still don't get the cross. They don't understand why Jesus has to die in their place. And without that understanding, they're not ready yet to proclaim his identity to others. But they would come to understand. They would come to reveal the truth about Jesus, the heavenly realities of his kingdom, the riches of his grace. They would come to write it down and preach it to others. And that apostolic word, that truth about God's new humanity in Christ is here for us to read and to hear and to consider today. The treasure is laid out before you. The meal is prepared, so it's decision time, and decisions are hard. 
Deciding for Jesus carries with it a level of cost, the cost of being treated like Jesus was treated. Deciding for Jesus will bring, about it, uh, bring with it a certain amount of criticism. And some of that criticism, as people in our church family know, will be very robust and direct indeed. And I suppose you could therefore say it carries with it a certain amount of risk. It's a risk to our pride as we humble ourselves and acknowledge our sin and our need for forgiveness. It's our risk to our reputation as we align ourselves with a rejected saviour. It's a risk to our comfort here and now as we join in his mission to share the good news with a world that most of the time doesn't want to hear it. It's a risk to our autonomy and our independence and our individual self-expression as we submit ourselves to Jesus in his word and we submit ourselves to one another in the community of a local church. But ask the people in this room who've come to know Jesus and they will tell you that the reward far, far outweighs the risk. Come to Jesus and you will lose your pride, your comfort, your reputation, your autonomy, things which are questionable and fragile at best anyway. But you'll gain the whole world. You'll gain forgiveness of your sins as a free gift. You'll gain membership of the new humanity in Christ, expressed in the privilege of belonging to a local church community which is gathered around Jesus, hearing his living word proclaimed week by week. You'll gain Christ's protection against the gates of Hades, even his promise of life after death. You will gain a future resurrection welcome into Christ's presence forever. And so will you decide for Jesus today? I'm not just talking to you if this would be your first time, but also if it would be your thousandth. Every day we wake up, we all face difficult decisions, don't we? And if we do nothing... If we close our eyes and reach into the wardrobe and put on the easiest and most comfortable clothes we can find, spiritually speaking, if we, if we go with the flow, if we choose the easy option, we are likely to drift back into pride, into stubbornness. We're likely to begin to harden ourselves against the words of Jesus and to forget his precious and gracious promises. We're likely to take him for granted. We are likely to lose our joy in him. We are likely to forget that we deserve nothing and we've been given everything and to rejoice in that. We're likely to forget that. And so every week, every day for the individual believer and for every church of Jesus is decision time. Will you today humble yourself before God's grace? Will you lay down your attempt to build your own private kingdom and submit to Christ the King? Will we, as Moreland's Church, recommit ourselves to hearing his word together, to submitting to him, to walking in his ways day by day? Ah, it'll be costly, but it'll be worth it. Let's pray. Father, we want to acknowledge before you our poverty and our weakness, that Of ourselves, we're unable to understand anything in your word, anything about yourself. Even we're unable to understand ourselves. That of ourselves, we could not possibly hope to stand against the gates of Hades, to conquer death, or to stand against the attacks of the devil. And yet, Father, you have given us, by your grace, 
wonderful treasures in Christ. You've opened our eyes to see who Jesus is. We acknowledge that is a gift of your grace we did not deserve. You've promised us that you are gathering your church and you're going to build it and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Again, we acknowledge we don't deserve that and it's a gift of your grace. You've given us promises of forgiveness and security and joy forever and we acknowledge we don't deserve those either and they're gifts of your grace. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his grace, his kindness to us. Father, never let us forget that. Never let us grow complacent or comfortable about that. Always remind us, Father, what a gift it is and what a joy it is to know Jesus as our Lord. Help us remember what a joy it is to open your word and to understand it and to help each other understand it. Help us remember what a joy it is to belong to a local church. Help us remember what a joy it is to proclaim your gospel to those who need to hear it. Thank you that you are building your church, that people are day by day, week by week, renouncing their own private kingdoms and coming to submit to Christ. And we pray that we'll be people who do that day by day as well, that we'd be a church who does that week by week, that we would humble our pride, come before you again, acknowledge that Christ is all in all, and receive with thanksgiving the promises that you've made to us. Bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.